This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. The Quill Podcast Awards were just recently launched, and they are listener-nominated awards. The link is in my show notes, and I would be so appreciative if people took three minutes and nominated this podcast in the society and culture category. Thank you so much in advance. Today, I am interviewing Emiko Jean about Tokyo Ever After. When Emiko is not writing, she is reading. Most of her friends are imaginary. Before she became a writer, she was an entomologist, a fancy name for a bug catcher, a candle maker, a florist, and most recently a teacher. She lives in Washington with her husband and children, who are unruly twins. She loves the rain. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Emiko. How are you today? I'm so good. How are you? I am so good also, and I'm thrilled to pieces that you're here to talk with me about Tokyo Ever After. I just absolutely loved it. Thank you. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about it? Just tell us the basic premise. Sure. So Tokyo Ever After is all about teen uh, Azumi Tanaka. She is a Japanese-American living with her single mother in a small, predominantly white town. Although she has a great relationship with her mom, Azumi does wonder who her father is. And spoiler alert, he's the crown prince of Japan, which makes Izumi literally a princess. What follows is a whirlwind of events as Izumi travels to Japan to meet her father, the country she's always dreamed of, and soon enough, she finds herself caught between worlds, one where she was never or never felt American enough, and one where she doesn't feel Japanese enough. The story is full of glitz and glamour, there's ball gowns and tiaras and sweeping romance, But at its heart, it's really about a girl searching for a place she belongs and finding her identity. Well, how did you decide to write about this? Like, where did the subject matter come from? It's so interesting. The story, you know, a lot of writers or some writers will get kind of thunderbolts and have this beautiful moment where the story comes to them all in one singular moment. But for me, it really evolved in layers. I really wanted to write about a girl specifically who is Japanese-American like myself, who was searching for her identity, which I struggled with as a teen. I also remember not really seeing myself in a lot of the books that I loved as a teen, and that was incredibly formative. In fact, it was probably what delayed me from writing for so long because I didn't think that was a pathway for me. So it just kind of made sense to, to piece those things together and put them into this 
big royal stage where this girl finds out that she's really a princess and learns about her culture in a very public, fun way. That's so interesting that you mentioned that you didn't feel like it was a path for you. Mm-hmm. You are the third author to say that to me in probably a week. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I feel like we're beginning to have a lot more discussions about different cultures and different people and learning about everybody. But that particular aspect of it is not something that I had even reflected on nor thought about. And clearly, it's a, a very common theme. Yes. It's something that I hadn't really reflected on until I started my writing journey and was questioning why I didn't do this sooner, this thing that I loved. And the answer was clear to me then that it was because there wasn't any representation when I was growing up. There weren't Japanese American protagonists. There weren't Japanese American writers. And when you don't see yourself reflected, it automatically closes that pathway for you. And it's it's interesting to try to Think about how that absence of something can be so formative. You don't even have the ability to imagine it because it's just so far outside the realm. Exactly, exactly. Well, I think one of the things I really liked about your book was Izzy's struggle to find her identity and to understand who she is and where she fits in. And I feel like you portrayed that so well. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's interesting because Azumi is in a much better place than I was as a teen. In a way, her story was sort of a wish fulfillment. I didn't reconcile my Japanese-American identity until later in life. In fact, I would probably say that I didn't reconcile it until I wrote this book. My entire life I've had, you know, I've been kind of divided up as a person saying that, you know, I'm half Japanese, I'm half white, and never really viewed as a whole person. And I really wanted Izumi to have that journey and to come to that conclusion much earlier than I did, that she was a whole person and very worthwhile. One of the things that really stuck with me is when she first gets to Tokyo, she's in the limo on the way to the Imperial family. And she looks around and she's like, everyone here looks like me. And that had never happened to her before. And that has just really stuck with me since I finished your book. Yeah. It's such a privilege to blend in. And I I took a road trip with some, let's walk down memory lane here, I took a road trip with uh, some girlfriends when after I was 18, and we went to different parts of the United States, and I think I went, we were in uh, Southern California, and we went to like a, I think it was Little Tokyo we went to, and there were so many Japanese people there, and my friends, who were both white, remarked that they felt like they were standing out. And it was kind of this really glorious moment for me where I was blending in. I saw other people that looked like me. My hair was as dark as other people's. And my friends were feeling the differences. And it was nice to have that discussion with them because that's how I felt on a daily basis. I think that that's one of the things I really liked about your book so much is because you always talk about fiction, teaching empathy and helping you sort of put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I just feel like you did that so well. Like I could feel Azumi's struggle and understand, try to understand where she was struggling and having a hard time finding any place to fit in and then why. And I think that that really helps when you can understand the why. Yeah. I mean, I whenever I draft a story, I like to think of it you know, stories as windows and mirrors. So either you see yourself in the text and you respond to that, or it transports you and it's a portal to another world, one that you haven't ever seen before. And so that is my hope with this story is that it builds empathy for 
one version of the Asian American experience. Well, the other portion of that is I don't know very much about Japan. I've never been there. It's just not a country I'm super familiar with. And I feel like I learned so much about Japan from reading your book, about both Tokyo and a little bit about Kyoto when she visited there, about some of their traditions and the royal family and having this palace right in the middle of Tokyo, where, you know, you always think of Tokyo as just building after building after building. And instead, I had no idea there there was this big palace with so much green right in the heart of the city. Yeah, it's really this kind of unknown oasis in the middle of Tokyo. And I can't remember the exact dollar figure, but it's the land holdings of the Imperial family is in the is in the billions. Oh, it must be if it's sitting in the middle of Tokyo. <laughs> it's like Central Park, you know? <laughs> well, how did you do the research? I did so much research for this. There are a lot of historical text on the Imperial family, a lot center around their, their role in World War II. There are personal biographies of the emperors, which I read. There's very little actually known about the princesses, and so that was harder to find, and I had to kind of look through articles and uh, more online sources for that, that sort of stuff. But what ended up coming out is I had all these pieces that I put together, and eventually there was a whole picture that emerged about you know, the imperial family's history and their public lives, their private lives. One of the things I thought was so interesting was that each princess has a hobby. And so Azumi's trying to figure out what her hobby is going to be. And that portion of the story was pretty entertaining. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I included silkworm breeding, which is actually a hobby that the princesses do partake in of the imperial family. Usually it's the crown princess. It's a tradition that's passed down from the empress to the crown princess. I took a little creative license and had it be just for the princesses. But it is an ancient hobby. It dates back to the first emperors and empresses. And they would use the silk worm, the silk from the worms to make textiles. And so I thought it was an interesting thing for not only Azumi to explore as part of like tradition, but also as something that she might want to do in the future. And each princess has her main hobby in her bio, isn't that correct? Yes, it's very much part of who they are. And hobbies are carefully considered. They can't be too political because there's a, there's a publicity element to them. I liked that. I thought that was really interesting. And again, it was just not something I was familiar with. Which character did you enjoy writing the most? I really loved drafting Yoshi. Uh, he is a cousin of, of Azumi's, and he's grown up in this very privileged, lush lifestyle. And I found it very challenging to kind of get into his world and figure out his point of view. But in the end, he, ended, he was just kind of this irreverent, fun, devil-may-care character. He does have his own arc and some things that are going on, but... Just exploring how to live that life and the and the how lavish it is was just fun to kind of dive into. I also really liked writing Nora and Azumi's friend group. I loved that they were always just so supportive of each other and always showed up for one another. I liked them so much too, and I liked the way you portrayed them. So with the four of them together, while they were all close friends, there were still interesting dynamics within the group, which I think is what really happens in real life. And often you don't see that in fiction. It's these four best friends. They all love each other. There's no drama. you know. And so I love that you portrayed them very realistically and genuinely. 
And I also like the format where you you had the text in there and then the Tokyo Tatler. I mean, the way you did the format was very clever. How did that happen? That kind of happened pretty organically. I knew that I wanted the girls to continue to be in touch and support each other. And I, you know, the only way that they could really do that was kind of through text message, especially with the differences in time zone. And I also knew with the tabloid articles, that was a narrative device that I wanted to use from the beginning because the imperial family is so large. The country of Japan is so large and it enabled me to give this wider perspective. So to show the reader kind of the mechanizations that were going on that Izumi wouldn't be able to see or explain. I love that they didn't tell her some of the time that she was in some of these articles and she discovered them, I think, at one point. Yeah, there's actually a media ban on imperial property. So much of the imperial family doesn't actually see what's written about them. Which is kind of funny, you know, you would think that they might be able to learn occasionally from something that's written about them. And so if they're not able to see it, they may get kind of out of touch. What do you think? I do think there's a there's a heavy veil between the imperial family and the public. And right now there's pressure to kind of lift that veil. There's also a lot of pressure to change the succession order. With the imperial family, only males can inherit the throne. So I know that they are also facing that pressure from the public to change the succession order, especially because the current emperor has a daughter. He only has a daughter. So that makes your story even more timely. Mm -hmm. There's some parallels there. Yes, (laughs) I know. It's like, I'm not going to say anything else. Well, tell me about both the title and the cover. The, The cover is just stunning. And I'm just curious about the title. I really like it. And I wonder how it came about. Sure. So Tokyo Ever After, I wanted something that sounded and honored kind of the fairy tale aspect of the book. And so using that line, Ever After, felt very natural and right for it. And then juxtaposing it against the word Tokyo, which it feels kind of new. (laughs) Um, Definitely. I mean, as an adolescent growing up, a lot of the fairy tales I read didn't come out of Tokyo. So it felt like there was a little bit of a modern twist to it as well. As far as the cover goes, I remember having conversations with my editor, Sarah Barley at Flatiron, and we both agreed that representation was important and that we wanted to put a Japanese girl on the cover. And we brainstormed some ideas from doing an illustration to doing a drawing to doing an actual photograph. I also at the same time was emailing her kind of lists of Japanese things because I really wanted to put some sort of traditional Japanese element also on the cover and fold that in. And I had brought up origami and Sarah mentioned paper cutouts, which felt so right. And then things kind of just progressed from there. We found a wonderful artist who did the paper cutouts for it. There was a lot of back and forth of, you know, if she should have her eyes closed, if she should be looking down, what her smile should look like. But we landed on this final version, and I think it's so, so beautiful. It is so, so beautiful. And this may be an unpopular opinion as people are listening, but I am not a fan of all of these illustrated, I don't know, cartoon covers, whatever they are, the, the, you know, the romance genre now, like they just, I don't know, they don't resonate with me at all. So I was just so glad that this wasn't that, that instead it was much more tied to your story but also was just beautiful and stunning and and not another graphically designed cartoon or I don't know what you want to call it, illustrated cover. Yeah, I think it's it's so gorgeous. And I love that it honors kind of 
It has that nod to paper craft, which Japan is known for. So I think I think we really hit it out of the ballpark. Absolutely. I think anyone who sees it is going to immediately go and pick it up and want to see what it's about. Hopefully. <laughs> they will. <laughs> well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Um, so I am just finishing revising uh, revisions on the second book in Tokyo Ever After, which is titled Tokyo Dreaming. And we will see Azumi back in Tokyo and she's in the palace. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it's going to be really fun. So is Tokyo Dreaming a takeoff of California Dreaming? I hadn't thought of that. We were kind of pinging ideas back and forth and we had gone through Tokyo Forever, which felt too final and didn't roll off the trunk as naturally. And then I think someone suggested Tokyo Dreaming, and it just felt right for the story and where Izumi was in her life. But I like that California Dreaming take, though, so I might, I might use that sometime. Yes, you need to. You can instead be singing Tokyo Dreaming, and I'm already looking forward to it. Will it be out next year? I believe so, yeah. Spring next year. Okay, good. I will keep my eye out for it. What about your writing habits? Do you sit down and write every single day? Do you write when you have time? How does that work for you? So I write full time. I used to sit down and write every day, but now with the launch of Tokyo Ever After coming so soon, I'm juggling a lot more than I'm used to in the best possible way, but I'm having (laughs) to um, kind of be more protective of my writing time. I have a weird kind of work tick where if I can't, have a full writing day and really sink into the work. I can't, I, I can't write. So I have to kind of schedule interviews and podcasts or, you know, question and answer sessions and stuff like that back to back and then block out whole writing days. When I do have a whole writing day, I can usually draft around two to 3,000 words or revise a few chapters. Do you plot out your entire story before you start, or do you just sit down with an idea and start writing and it takes you where it takes you? I have done both. For my first book, We'll Never Be Apart, which was a YA thriller, I completely wrote by the seat of my pants. I don't recommend it. I think I I probably revised that 12 or 13 times. Wow. And uh, there was just a lot of structural work that needed to be done to it. Since then, I have graduated to to outlining. So for Empress of All Seasons, I outlined pretty loosely. And then for Tokyo Ever After, I hardcore outlined it, making sure that I had all of the act turns in there, making sure that I had a midpoint low and a midpoint high. And that drastically reduced my revising time. So now I'm down to about three or four revisions at a time. Well, that is a drastic reduction. So you're probably thinking, okay, from going forward, I'm always going to do the outline and the the plotting. Yeah. And I give myself a lot of grace to, if I need to go away from the outline, I let myself write that out. But for the most part, I stick to, to like I said, the major turning points. Like I know what's going to happen to the character at the midpoint. I know what they're going to happen to them at the end, um, where they're going to really have the gut punches, where they're going to really feel those life highs. And I'm sure as you write, like you said a minute ago, you may think, well, I thought it was going to go this direction, but that's not working quite so well for this character. So you can go in a different way, but at least it gives you the structure of the story to work within. 
Exactly. And it also helps me define too, which I haven't been as good at, all of the character arcs that need to be completed. I usually start with the main character and their arc, and I know where they're going to go. But outlining has helped me kind of figure out and really thread through all the other character arcs, where they're ending, where they're beginning and where they're ending, and how they all impact each other, how their journeys influence the other's journeys. Which made a big difference in this story. I think so. I, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of great friendships that I see that um, impact each other and lift each other up. I especially love the relationship between Mariko, Ozumi's lady-in-waiting. They have a kind of a stiff beginning, but by the end of the book, they come to terms in a really, in a really nice way. And I, I don't think I would have been able to do that if I was kind of writing by the seat of my pants, or at least it would have taken a lot longer to get there. Right. Because as you get through your first draft and you're working on edits and you're thinking, oh, maybe I didn't do this portion as well. But instead, if you've kind of thought through it all ahead of time, then at least you're working within each of those character arcs. Exactly. Like with an outline, you can go through and kind of uh, highlight. I use different color highlighters to show where the characters, you know, to show them in the actual chapters. And so in a very visual way, I could see that Mariko was kind of at the outset of the novel that she was falling off and that she wasn't appearing as much at the end of the novel. So I had to go back through the outline and kind of put her back into the story and figure out how how her story was going to be resolved. And I mean, she's an important part of the story. She is. She's such an important part. She became a really important part. She's someone that evolved over the course of drafts. She actually, there was, in the original draft, there was another tutor that eventually was cut just for length and time. And I folded a lot of the tutor's scenes and arc into Mariko's. And I think that just made her feel complete. Well, I really liked her. I felt like she was a great portion of the story. Yeah, I liked her too. And I'm, I'm, she'll be back in the second book as well. Oh, good. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you would recommend. So I just finished Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Boley. I hope I'm not butchering her name, so I apologize if I am. It's a beautiful Native American YA thriller, and it is an edge-of-your-seat story. I stayed up so late reading it. I think I fed my kids like chocolate chips and candy the next morning <laughs> because I was so, so tired. Oh, you're like, here, just eat this, whatever it is. <laughs> but it is so good. I keep hearing that. I really want to read that when you were like the fifth person to say that, that it is truly a page turner. It's And you know, her story is really remarkable as well. It took her 10 years to write it. And she was writing between raising kids and a full-time job. And she really honed the story in a beautiful way. So I, I recommend it. I'm also still making my way through Miney, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. It's a memoir composed of essays. Those I read kind of one at a time. It's, it's really brilliant, but also intense. And it brings up a lot of feelings for me as an Asian American. So I have been taking little bites of that at a time, but it's a great book. I've heard great things about it. I have not read it either, but I remember when it came out, it had a lot of hype. Yeah, it's it's really good. Great. Well, any others before we wrap up or is that it? I would love to, if you don't mind. Uh, there's a lot of books by Asian American authors that I'd love to plug. Sure. No, I'd love that. You know, one of my favorite things about this podcast is finding new authors. When Catherine McGee came on in the fall, 
with her royalty series, she's the one that first told me about Tokyo Ever After and put it on my radar screen. So I always love hearing recommendations because it helps me look ahead and find books that I wouldn't necessarily come across. That's so great. And I just, I really want to lift Asian American voices. Joan He's book, The Ones We're Meant to Find, is coming out in May. I haven't read it yet, but it's been described as this kind of sci-fi Black Mirror-esque book. And it's about sisters. And I'm always, I have sisters myself. So anything that's kind of about sisters is my jam. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Luck of the Titanic by Stacey Lee is coming out. And From Little Tokyo with Love by Sarah Kuhn is also coming out in May. So I'd, I'd like to recommend those. I just stumbled across the Lucky Titanic. That's the name of it, right? Lucky Titanic? Luck of the Titanic. Luck of the Titanic. I just came across that yesterday. And what a beautiful cover. It looks really good. And she wrote The Downstairs Girl, which was so good as well. Um, I'm just a big fan of her writing. So I know she won't disappoint. Okay, good. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, Emiko, for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I loved your book, and I know everybody else will, and it was so much fun to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Enter my podcast in the Society and Culture category of the Quill Podcasts Awards. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Emiko's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.